Chapter 11 of Autobiography of an Actress by Anna Cora Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Why do you not write a play? said E.S. to me one morning. You have more decided talent for the stage than anything else. If we can get it accepted by the Park Theater, and if it should succeed, you have a new and wide field of exertion open to you, one in which success is very rare, but for which your turn of mind has particularly fitted you. What shall I attempt, comedy or tragedy? Comedy, decidedly because you can write only what you feel, and you are nothing if not critical. Besides, you will have a fresh channel for those sarcastic ebullitions with which you so constantly indulge us. It was true that at that period of my life a vein of sarcasm, developed by the trials through which I had passed, pervaded all my thoughts, and betrayed itself in much that I wrote, as well as in conversation. E. S.'s suggestion appeared to me good, and I commenced fashion. If it is a satire on American parnouveauism, it was intended to be a good-humored one. No charge can be more untrue than that which I have been taxed through the press and in private the accusation of having held up to ridicule well-known personages. The character of Mrs. Tiffany was not drawn from any one individual, but was intended as the type of a certain class. The only character in the play which was sketched from life was that of the blunt, warm-hearted farmer. I was told that the original was seen in the pit vociferously applauding Adam Truman's strictures on fashionable society. It was not very wonderful that his sentiments found an echo in my friend's bosom. I longed to ask the latter whether he recognized his own portrait, but we have never met since the likeness was taken. There were no attempts in fashion at fine writing. I designed the play wholly as an acting comedy. A dramatic, not a literary, success was what I desired to achieve. Caution suggested my not aiming at both at once. Fashion was offered to the Park Theater. In the usual course of events, its fate would have been to gather dust amongst an ever-increasing pile of manuscripts on Mr. Simpson's table, heaps of rejected plays, heaps of plays, the merits of which were never even investigated. It generally takes several months to induce a manager to read a new play, several months more before he consents to its production. Making exception to prove this rule, Mr. Simpson read fashion at once. He liked it, and handed the manuscript to his stage manager, Mr. Barry, who also approved it, and pronounced that the play would make a hit. A few days more, and I received official information that fashion was accepted by the Park Theater, that it would be produced without delay and in the style of a great magnificence, also that I would receive an author's benefit on the third night, 
and a certain percentage of the nightly receipts of the theatre for every performance of the play after it had run a stipulated number of nights on listening to this intelligence i very quietly asked myself whether i was awake it took some time and needed some practical experiments upon my own sensibilities before i could feel assured that i was not enjoying a pleasant dream i was almost too much surprised to be elated it was necessary that i should call on mr barry to hear his suggestions concerning the casting of the play and certain slight alterations i did so and listened without seeming attention to his laying down of dramatic law but i was in a state of agreeable bewilderment throughout the whole interview when i rose to leave and received his very patronizing congratulations on having written a remarkable play i could not help fancying that he was saying to himself what a silly little soul it is indeed i half expected that he was going to pat me on the head and commend me for my smartness the impression i left upon his mind was certainly not that i was a very formidable or very brilliant character the play was at once announced and put into rehearsal the day before its representation i became anxious to witness one of these rehearsals that i might form some idea of its chances of success it is an author's privilege to attend the rehearsals of his own production his acknowledged seats being at the manager's table upon the stage he is also at liberty to make suggestions to the actors explanatory of his ideas though as a general rule he finds that they understand what he intended much better than he does himself at least they politely assure him that such is the case of these customs i was too unsure of success to avail myself i preferred to overlook the mysterious doings from a private box unseen by the actors rehearsal was just commencing when mr mawbot and myself were introduced by mr blake for many years the box-keeper of the park theatre into the theatre the whole front of the building was so dark that we had to feel our way stumbling over benches and chairs until we succeeded in gaining our seats the stage was lighted by a single branch of gas shooting up to the height of several feet in the centre of the footlights it sent forth a dim blue spectral light that gave a phantom-like appearance to the surrounding objects on the right of the stage was the prompter's table on the left the manager's table beneath the ghastly light sat a pale-faced prompter with the manuscript of fashion in his hand on the side stood a call boy a child of about ten years of age he held a long strip of paper somewhat resembling the tailor's bill of young spendthrifts as they are represented on the stage this was the call for the actors and directed him which to summon from the green room the rehearsal of fashion had begun it was singular to see these kings and queens of the stage whom i had been accustomed to behold bedecked in golden embroidered robes and jewel crowns glittering in the full blaze of the footlights now moving about in this visible darkness 
some of the men in shocking bad hats and rough overcoats, and the women in modern bonnets in place of tiaras or wreaths of flowers, and mantles and warm cloaks instead of peasant petticoats or brocade trains. I found it difficult to recognize the romantic heroes and injured heroines in those sufferings I had so often sympathized. Every actor held his part, to which he constantly referred. It gave me an odd sensation to hear my own language uttered in all variety of tones, and often conveying a meaning of which I did not suppose it to be susceptible. But I soon discovered that a rehearsal was a very serious affair. There was no laughing, except now and then at the situations of the play, at which, by the by, I was particularly flattered. No talking, except in reference to the business of the scene, and now and then a remark from some critical malcontent, which was never intended for the author's ears. There are two dances in the fourth act of fashion, and these were gone through with a business-like gravity that was alarming. While witnessing this solemn rehearsal, I began to fancy I had made a mistake and unconsciously written a tragedy. Rehearsal lasted several hours. At its close, when we stumbled through the dark passage to the box office and stood once more in the light of day, it seemed to me again as though I had been dreaming. But the dream was a very sober one, and while it lasted, I received a lesson upon the vanity of human wishes." Of the probable success of the play, I could not form the faintest idea. The next night, fashion was produced. With an anxious heart, I took my seat in the same private box from which I had overlooked the gloomy rehearsal on the day previous. What a different aspect everything wore! The theater flooded with lights. The gay decorations, the finely painted drop curtain, the boxes filled with beautiful women, the dense crowd in the pit and galleries, the inspiring music, all seemed the effect of some Scottish glamour rather than a reality. The music ceased. The gentleman who was to personate the Count in the comedy appeared before the curtain and delivered a prologue written by F. Sargent. It was a capital prologue one calculated to put the audience in a good humor, and thus it took the first gigantic step towards ensuring the success of the play. I subjoin it, though much of its effect necessarily depends on an appropriate delivery and stage action. Prologue. Enter a gentleman reading a newspaper. Fashion. A comedy. I'll go. But stay. Now I read further. Tis a native play. Bah! Homemade caligos are well enough, but homemade dramas must be stupid stuff. Had it but a London stamp, twould do, but then, for plays we lack the manners and the men. Thus speaks one critic, here's another creed. Fashion? What there? Reads? It can never succeed. What? From a woman's pen? It takes a man to write a comedy. No woman can. Well, sir, and what say you? And what that frown? His eyes uprolled. He lays the paper down. Here, takes, he says, the unclean thing away. Tis tainted with the notice of the play. But, sir, but gentlemen, you, sir, who think no comedy can flow from native ink? 
are we such perfect monsters or such dull that wit no traits for ridicule can call have we no follies here to be redressed no vices gibbeted no crimes confessed but then a female hand can't lay the lash on how know you that sir when the theme is fashion and now come forth thou man of sanctity how shall i venture a reply to thee the stage what is it though beneath thy ban but a daguerreotype of life and man arraign poor human nature if you will but let the drama have her mission still let her with honest purpose still reflect the faults which keen-eyed satire may detect for there be men who fear not a hereafter yet tremble at the hell of public laughter friends from these scoffers we appeal to you condemn the faults but oh applaud the true grant that some wit may grow on native soil and art's fair fabric rise from a woman's toil while we exhibit but to reprehend the social vices tis for you to mend the audience applauded as was expected of them the prologue ended and the curtain rose the cast of the play was exceedingly strong so admirable that when upon the falling of the curtain after the fifth act an unequivocally brilliant success had been achieved i was forced to admit that my laurels were not of my earning it would have been difficult for a play to fail with such acting as Chippendale's in his striking delineation of Adam Truman, Mrs. Knight in her irresistibly comic personation of Prudence, Fisher as Snobson, Crisp as the Count, Mr. Barry as Mr. Triffany, Doyitz as Colonel Howard, De Walden as Mr. Twinkle, J. Howard's as Fogg, Skirrits as Zeke, Miss Ellis as Gertrude, Mrs. Berry's as Mrs. Tiffany, Miss Horn's as Serafina, Mrs. Doyett's as Villanette. The play was announced for repetition every night, and the audience loudly testified their approbation. The day after the performance of a new drama, it is customary to call a rehearsal for the sake of cutting the play, if too long, and almost all plays are too long as originally written, and to make other necessary alterations. To this rehearsal I was formally invited by the managers. Accompanied by Mr. Mawet, I gladly attended. On that day, for the first time, I crossed the stage of a theatre. I was conducted to a seat at the manager's table. The theatre had undergone its transformation again. All was darkness and silence. The solitary gas branch burned as blue and ghastly as ever, and the actors, in their everyday dresses, moved mysteriously about in its shadowy light. But on nearer view, they looked like weary and care-laden human beings instead of phantoms. Again, the rehearsal of fashion commenced. Mr. Barry arranged the cuts, requesting my approval in a manner which left me very little alternative. The principal actors were presented to me, and I made as delicate hints concerning certain misinterpretations of the text as I dared venture upon. 
it was very evident that they singly and collectively entertained the opinion that an author never knew the true meaning of his own words his suppositions to the contrary were mere hallucinations fashion was repeated again that night the next one was appointed for my benefit on the occasion the house was literally crammed from pit to dome owing to judicious cutting the performance was more rapid than on the first night and went off with even greater spirit at the falling of the curtain there was a call for the author this i had anticipated and instead of bowing from a private box according to the established usage i sent mr berry a few lines expressive of my thanks and desired him to deliver them before the curtain mr berry then came forward said one of the newspapers the next morning and spoke as follows ladies and gentlemen i am commissioned by mrs mollett to offer you her sincere and most grateful acknowledgments for the favour which you have received this comedy she desires me to express the hope that you will take it rather as an earnest of which she may do hereafter than as a fair specimen of what american dramatic literature ought to be loud applause with your permission ladies and gentlemen i will announce the comedy of fashion every night until further notice loud and continued applause the audience were satisfied and i was spared the necessity of making probably an awkward acknowledgment in person on the night of this benefit i sent to each of the ladies engaged in the play a trifling remembrance of the occasion a note acknowledging my indebtedness to the whole company for their admirable personations was addressed to mr berry this was framed and hung by him in the green room fashion was played nightly to full houses for three weeks and only withdrawn to make room for stars who were engaged before its production during the run of the play in new york it was produced in philadelphia at the walnut street theater under the management of e a marshall esq the stage manager being w rufus blake esq its success was as brilliant as in new york the managers sent a pressing invitation to mr mollett and myself to visit philadelphia and witness the representation we accepted and were entertained by them for three days at one of the first hotels in the most courteous manner our suite of apartments were the best that could be procured our table was sumptuously provided and a carriage stood always at the door at our disposal the conduct of these gentlemen deserves particular mention for there are few managers who would feel called upon to testify their indebtedness to an author in a style so generous and complimentary a play may enrich a theatre yet as a general rule the manager ignores the existence of the author except so far as his contract is concerned the representation of fashion in philadelphia afforded us an unqualified pleasure it is difficult or rather impossible to decide whether the play is produced with greater eclat and more magnificent stage appointments at the walnut or at the park theatre the cast too was equally strong at both theatres w rufus blake one of the most gifted of the pathetic and comic old men of the stage enacted adam truman 
Mrs. Thayer was drollness personified in Prudence, Wheatley as the Count, Fredericks as Mr. Tiffany, Chapman as Snobson, Young as Zeke, Mrs. Jones as Mrs. Tiffany, Miss Alexina Fisher as Gertrude, Miss Susan Cushman as Serafina, and Mrs. Blake as Mil Milanette, could not be surpassed even by their contemporaries of the park. We were accompanied to the theater by Mr. and Mrs. Mason, the charming Emma Wheatley of Park Theater memory. Our box was furnished with white satin bills printed in letters of gold. At the close of the play, the actors were all called before the curtain. Then shouts rose for the author. The audience had become aware that she was in the theater. If I had reflected on the subject, I should have expected this summons. As it was, I chanced to be wholly unprepared, and the unlooked-for demonstration affected me unpleasantly. Our party were seated in the first tier and exposed to the full gaze of the audience, who now turned themselves en masse towards us. The shouts continued, and Mr. Mowat and Mr. Mason entreated me to rise and curtsy. I could not muster courage and felt more inclined to make a cowardly escape. The audience grew more vociferous at the delay. There is no use of refusing. You will be obliged to rise, whispered Mrs. Mason. I saw she was right and answered, I will if you will rise also and curtsy with me. She objected at first, but finding that I would not move, and that the shouts were only redoubled, she amiably consented. We rose together and were greeted with prolonged cheering. I curtsied several times, but was not sufficiently self-possessed to notice whether she did the same. This ceremony over, we took our departure as rapidly as possible. I little thought that, in less than two months, I would curtsy to an audience from stage of that very theater. At the door of the theater, we were met by the managers, who requested that I would allow them to conduct me behind the scenes and present the members of the company. This was another unexpected trial of my nerves, for I had not overcome a certain feeling of awe towards stage heroes and heroines, but I could not with any degree of graciousness refuse. We passed through a private entrance leading from the boxes. The green curtain was down. The stage represented a drawing room in the house of Mr. Tiffany. The actors were ranged in a semicircle awaiting us. They were presented in turn, and I exchanged, or tried to exchange, a few words with each of the ladies. But I fancy that my remarks were not particularly sensible, or much to the purpose. The impromptu introduction and the novelty of my situation had confused my ideas, and it is very probable that I commented on the excessive heat when everyone stood shivering about me. The next day, however, I hoped the remembrance of my awkwardness and embarrassment was effaced from the minds of the ladies in question, for I sent them each a gold pencil in token of my appreciation of their efforts. "'Do you not feel proud?' inquired a friend of me. I answered with perfect sincerity, "'Perhaps I should, if the acting of fashion had not been so very excellent that the author only has a secondary share of the general success. The secret of that success was that fashion is, strictly speaking, an acting play, 
and placed in the hands of an accomplished company the characters were recreated an amount of interest was thus kept alive which so simple a plot could not legitimately awaken edgar a poe one of my sternest critics wrote of fashion that it resembled the school for scandal in the same degree that the shell of a locust resembles the living locust if his severity was but just it must be that the spirits of the performers infused themselves into the empty shell and produced a very effective counterfeit of life after three most delightful days we bade adieu to our manager host and returned to new york the publishing business in which mr mawet was engaged had for some time been unsuccessful just at this period he failed and became involved in greater difficulties than ever the success of fashion had attracted the attention of managers again i received propositions to go upon the stage coupled with the assurance that i would rapidly acquire an independence the day had come when all things seemed to work together to force me of the necessity to contemplate this step my health was still variable and i had not yet wholly recovered from the effects of long illness i had always intended to resume public readings when i grew sufficiently strong nearly double the amount of physique was needed for a night's reading than was required for the performance of a light part in a five-act drama my views concerning the stage and my estimate of the members of dramatic companies had undergone a total revolution many circumstances had proved to me how unfounded were the prejudices of the world against the profession as a body the communication into which i had been brought by the production of fashion with the managers and members of the park company and the managers of the walnut street theatre added to all i heard of their private histories convinced me that i had formed unjust conclusions rather i had adopted the conclusions of those who were as ignorant on the subject as myself who perhaps cared as little as i had done to ascertain the truth my after experiences taught me that truer words concerning the stage were never written than those of mary howitt which preface her memoir of me referring to the members of the profession with whom she became acquainted she says our readers need not be told that we consider the stage as capable of becoming one of the great means of human advancement and improvement and for this reason it is that we especially rejoice to see amongst its ornaments men and women not only of surpassing talent and genius but which is far higher and much rarer of high moral character and even deep religious feeling let not the so-called religious world start at this assertion we know what we say and we fearlessly assert that there is many a poor despised player whose christian graces of faith patience charity and self-denial the vaunted virtues of the proud pharisee nor are they always the purest who talk most about purity welcome then and doubly welcome 
be all such reformers as come amongst us not only with the high argument of their own pure and blameless lives but who having passed through suffering and trial know experimentally how to teach and who teach through the persuasive power of genius and the benign influence of a noble womanly spirit these lines had not been then written but they apply to many a woman whom i have known who bears the too often contemptuously uttered name of actress women who with hearts full of anguish nightly practice forgetfulness of self and of their private sorrows to earn their bread by delighting a public who misjudges them i pondered long and seriously upon the consequences of my entering the profession the of society had no longer the power to awe me was it right was it wrong were questions of higher moment my respect for the opinions of mrs grundy had slowly melted away since i discovered that with the respectable representative of the world in general success sanctified all things nothing was reprehensible but failure i should never have adopted the stage as a matter of expediency alone however great the temptation what i did was not done lightly and irresponsibly i reviewed my whole past life and saw that from earliest childhood my taste studies pursuits had all combined to fit me for this end i had exhibited a passion for dramatic performances when i was little more than an infant i had played plays before I had ever entered a theatre. I had written plays from the time I was first witnessed a performance. My love for the drama was genuine, for it had developed at a period when the theatre was an unknown place and actors a species of mythical creatures. I determined to fulfill the destiny which seemed visibly pointed out by the unerring finger of Providence in all the circumstances, associations, and vicissitudes of my life in my intellectual taste and habits and the sympathies of my emotional nature i would become an actress mr mollett's appreciation of the drama was i think even greater than my own my wishes met with a ready response from him his only fear was that i had not the physical strength to endure the excitement and fatigue of an arduous vocation this had to be tested the consent of one other person was all that i required it was that of my father i had not courage personally to communicate my intentions mr mollett in a private interview with him explained the state of his own affairs the theatrical propositions i had received and my resolves should these resolutions meet with his sanction after they had conversed for some time I could endure the suspense no longer, and entered the room. My father spoke but two words, as I silently put my arms about his neck. They were, brave girl. Talismanic words they were to me, and ever after, when my spirits flagged, they sounded in my ears, and cheered me, and stimulated me, and made me brave. His consent, though not withheld, was given with some reluctance. 
but he had greater fears for my health than for my success. He assured me, and my ready ears drank in the words of promise, that if I had sufficient self-possession to act in public, as he had seen me perform in private, my success was certain. Before I contemplated the possibility of becoming an actress, I had partly engaged to write another comedy for Park Theater. The managers desired that the hero should be young instead of an old man, as in fashion. The part was to be adapted to the abilities of their leading juvenile comedian, Mr. C. This gentleman's performance of the Count in fashion had won him much-deserved applause. Mr. C. was consulted concerning the character which I proposed writing for him, and paid us several visits. The play was abandoned in consequence of my determination to enter the profession, and this change was at once communicated to him. I desired to make my first appearance in some of the cities of the Union where I was not personally known, and to study and practice my profession before I made my debut in New York. Mr. C., however, convinced us that this course would be unwise. The park was the one theater in the Union that could give the stamp of legitimacy. My debut must be made there. I could afterwards travel and gain experience before I accepted a second engagement in New York. He also represented to us that I needed an instructor to make me acquainted with the traditionary stage business of old established plays, one who could, at the same time, sustain opposite characters to me, and who would relieve me from the fatigue of directing rehearsals. He assured us that he had played the whole range of youthful heroes with Miss Fawcett and other English stars of note, and had been well drilled in the duties of stage manager in English and Scottish theatres. Before I even made my debut, he entered into the following contract with Mr. Mollett. I was to appear on the closing night of the season at the Park Theatre for his benefit. He was to travel with us and play opposite parts to me for one year, sharing equally the proceeds of every engagement. He was to assist in conducting the business arrangements, superintend all rehearsals, and afford me all the dramatic instruction in his power. It was soon represented to us by managers that this arrangement was hardly a fair one, but Mr. Mawat was too honorable not to adhere to a contract once made, however disadvantageous it might prove. The instant my projected appearance was announced, I had to encounter a flood of remonstrances from relatives and friends, opposition in every variety of form. But tears, entreaties, threats, supplicating letters could only occasion me much suffering. They could not shake my resolution. End of chapter 11